0: Turn in the Word of God to first Thessalonians chapter three. First Thessalonians chapter three It's been some time since we were here. At least it feels that way. We are going through a series in this epistle, and we have come near to the end of the third chapter, and we hope to finish off chapter three this morning. Thought I might do it the last time, but there was too much that needed to be said, and I'm hoping that's not the case this morning, again, that we'll manage to finish off this chapter. To refresh our minds, and for the benefit of hearing the Word of God, we're going to commence at verse 1, 1, Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, and read through all of the short chapter before we consider the last few verses together. The Apostle Paul, under inspiration, writes these words. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. And sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. That no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. For barely, when we were with you, He told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. But now, when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live if we stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do, toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. Will you bow your heads your hearts, more importantly, before the Lord with us, just before we consider the Word of God together, let's all pray and pray for our hearts, pray for our own souls that we would not miss out on what God is saying to us from His Word today. Lord, we thank Thee for all that has preceded this moment. Our hearts have been encouraged. We pray that Thou wilt fill more of our vision with Christ. Help us to love Him preeminently. And we pray that at His return we would not be found wanting. Should He return while we're still upon this earth, we ask that we would be found among the number that will be gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. Or should we be called home? Before then, we pray that we would be found among the number of the saints that will assemble with him and come with him in his glory. Please, we pray, O God, that not one under the sound of the word today would be lost and miss out on being one of his own at the return of the Lord Jesus. Bless, then, each one of us here today. Give us tender hearts. Help us to receive the Word, the engrafted Word, that is able to save our souls and to keep on protecting us and sanctifying us. Bless all that are here and even all that watch on from afar. May the Holy Ghost fall upon this Word. May it have a profound impact upon our lives, not even just temporarily, but lastingly through the rest of our lives. Only thy spirit can do this, so we rest upon him. Fill me with the Holy Ghost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For those that are not aware, we have been studying this epistle since the beginning of the year. And like all the Word of God, it is highly instructive. We don't want to forget the context of this epistle as the Apostle Paul takes up his pen, as it were, to write to a very infant church, a young church, a new church that had not known the Lord Jesus for very long, and they had very much to learn. And yet, in spite of their immaturity, if we can put it that way, this congregation is manifesting tremendous strength in the Lord. It has not been easy for them. They have found it very difficult. They have not been received by their community. Rather, they have been rejected. They have been cast off they have been tremendously afflicted and you see that in chapter 1 verse 6 ye became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction much affliction and yet they did it with joy of the Holy Ghost and so this congregation though it is very young and has been birthed in affliction the report coming back from Timothy Paul was concerned about how they were getting on and sends Timothy to see how they're getting on And the report that comes back, as we see from verse 6 of chapter 3, Timothy comes back and brings good tidings. And the word there is really a word that almost is exclusively referred to in terms of the gospel. But he uses it here that the good news that's coming from Timothy, the report that he brings back is is as good to his soul as the gospel itself. That when the gospel comes and thrills the heart as a soul that realizes that he is he is dead in trespasses and sins and he's on his way to hell and yet he, he finds out, he discovers that God has made a way to be reconciled to God in spite of sin. That, that news that thrills the soul, this news of this church and its progress has come similarly to the Apostle Paul. He is rejoicing. And so you can see that joy manifests itself there in verse 9. What thanks can we render to God again for you for all the joy wherewith we joy for your sex before our God. In this chapter, we have broken it up in three main sections. In verses 1 through 4, just to remind you, we see the pastoral care for a persecuted church. In verses 5 through 8, we have considered pastoral joy for a faithful church. And in verses 9 through 13, we are seeing pastoral praying for an infant church. And Last time, as I endeavored to finish up the chapter, I was unable to do so because there was so much in verses 9 and 10 that I wanted to bring out. We saw already the warmth in his praying in verse 9. As you see that, what thanks can we render to God again for you with all, for all the joy we're with. We joy for your sakes before God. There's a warmth here, a sense of connection with the people. There's also worship in his praying as he's rejoicing in the Lord. You can see him expressing that joy primarily to God. And the work in his praying in verse ten, where he says, "Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face." So he labors. He labors in prayer. It's not just a, a passing prayer that's offered up every so often, but he is laboring in prayer as some of as somewhat a pastor of this people, and he is upholding them, desiring God to be merciful to them. Well, we consider more of this prayer today as it continues in verse 10 and following to the end of the chapter. And what we're seeing here is the wish in his praying. That would be a, really a, a point under the, the pastoral praying for this infant church. The wish in his praying. We have just subpoints here that will help us navigate through the rest of these verses. And you may be wondering, as I say, the wish in his praying, as he continues to pray for this infant church, well, why is he using the word wish? It's not really a word that we often associate or use as Christian terminology, but a number of the commentators point out that Paul's prayer here is in the form of a wish. The grammar of the verbs is in the octave mood. and I don't know if you know much about that. I don't really know much. I, I read enough of men who do know, but the octave mood at the very least is that mood that indicates a wish or desire. Sometimes it has certain construction that shows it's Hypothetical, but in this case, it's more of a a desire, a longing for the people. And so that's why often the commentators will refer to this portion, this prayer, as really a wish from the Apostle Paul for them. And so while we don't often use the word wish, we do understand that it has a certain application even in the believer's life. We even sing about it in the hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer, that calls me from a world of care, and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. And Paul's going to use the same kind of mood in chapter 5, verse 23, when he says, The very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The same mood is there. The verbs are indicating that it's a wish. It's not something he's absolutely certain about It's not something that he can affirm will definitely take place, but it is the desire of his heart. And this is common in the benedictions. When you read through the benedictions of Scripture, sometimes I will, often I will pronounce a benediction, and the one that's coming to mind just now is one of my favorites in Jude, where it says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. There you have a benediction, a desire that he is pronouncing upon the people. And the language, and you can see this very often, the language of kind of a wish will be structured in such a way that it's a prayer, but it's also being directed toward the people. And so when you read it, it sounds like he's talking to the people, but what he's saying is really being referred to God. And so he's saying now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. He's addressing the people but he's really praying for them that God would keep them from falling and present them faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. You see that also in First Thessalonians chapter 5.23 that we just read, the very God of peace sanctify you holy. He's talking to them, but he is praying that God would keep their whole soul and body and spirit preserved blameless. And so, that's the kind of construction we have here at the end of chapter 3. You have a man That is burden for the people, praying for them, but it is a prayer that's constructed in such a way that reflects more of a wish than a certainty. Now, as we look at these verses, there are a number of things that we can see that he wishes for. First, he wished for the overthrow of Satan's conquest. Second, we're going to see that he wished for greater manifestation of the second commandment. And then third, we'll see he wished for their holiness at the second coming. First of all then, he wished for the overthrow of Satan's conquest. Look at verse 10. We've considered the first part of that already in our last message. The the work of his prayer, night and day, praying exceedingly. But then he goes on and says that we might see your face. This is what he's praying for, that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. So why is Paul praying so fervently? Well, in large part, it is with this desire to be present with them in order to help perfect them. Now, if you look at the language that he uses here, you see he wants to see their face. So you can say, well, he wants to be where they are, but he doesn't just want to be there because they're his friends or people that he likes. It is with a purpose. The pastor is not... The missionary is not in a place just because he likes the place or he likes the people. If someone's called to the mission field and they want to go there just because, well, I like the country or I like the scenery or I like the people, but he doesn't really have a burden for the real cause of him being there, then he's not going to do his work that God has called him to do. Paul wants to be there. He wants to see their face and might perfect that which is lacking in their faith. He wants to help them. He wants to be there in order to serve them. And essentially, we say this is the overthrow of Satan's conquest because this is a prayer against Satan's activity. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 18, you will see that he has made mention of his desire to return to them. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. And so several times Paul made an attempt to return to this church. He had, he had removed himself from it because of affliction, because of persecution. But he wanted to get back and he had been hindered by Satan. Now we've looked at that already. We can't say definitively what Satan was doing. But whenever he prays here, and this is what I want you to note, whenever he prays in verse 10 and he reflects what he desires, night and day praying exceedingly, that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. He's praying against Satan. Satan has been working to prevent Paul from being there. And Paul prays that God would give him the opportunity that he seeks for. What I want you to notice about that, however, is that he doesn't talk to Satan. Sometimes when you listen to the charismatic preachers and the TV preachers, they will talk you will you will find them actually addressing Satan, so if Satan is doing something that they don't like, or something Satan is manifesting resistance to them. Then they will, you know, we bind you, Satan, or they will talk to Satan in some way. But Paul never does that. You'll not find the Apostle Paul doing that. You find the Apostle Paul submitting himself to God. What is the point in talking to Satan? Unless you recognize or try to try to assume. A sense of sovereignty over Satan. We do not have sovereignty over Satan. Christ has. And so that is why the apostle is praying to God. Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. We're praying to God. That God in his mercy would overthrow Satan and give us the desire of his heart. So what's the, a couple of things here as he prays for this overthrow of Satan. First we see his reason. And then we'll see his submission. His reason is is at the end of verse 10. That we might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. That's why he wants to be there. As we've said already. Now, we need to understand exactly what Paul is saying here. Perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Was there something wanting in their justification? Was there a sense that they were... Partly saved, but not completely saved? Well, we know that's not the case. You go back to chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. There's this certainty of where they stand before God. That they had experienced divine election and divine love. Knowing, brethren, beloved or beloved of God. You have received the love of God. And you know the electing love of God. This is something that has transformed you so that it can be said in verse 9 that they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There had been a transformation in their lives. So these are a justified people. Those that are in the church professing faith in Christ, they are people that belong to the Lord. So what way is their faith lacking? Well, it's not about the strength of their faith but more about the knowledge of the faith. What it is they believe of the faith. And that's why Paul wants to be there. If it was about the strength of their faith, if it's about, if you look at the text, to perfect that which is lacking in your faith. If it was about the fact that they were lacking faith itself, and there was a measure of faith that was wanting, then Paul could just exhort them to ask God to, fill their minds and fill their hearts with more faith. But he sees his instrumentality in this. That it's not so much about the measure of their faith in terms of how much faith do they have, but the faith that, they, that they've already trusted themselves to, the faith of the gospel, is wanting. They don't know everything that they need to know. And so Paul's desire is to add to what they already understand. They don't understand everything there is to know about the gospel. They don't grasp everything there is to grasp about the personal work of Jesus Christ. They don't know everything that will prepare them to live the Christian life. And so he sees himself as God's instrument, as it were, to help the people of God grow in their faith. And so he's not saying, believe more, but I want to be with you so that you can have more to believe. That is the sense of perfecting the faith, completing the faith. To perfect the faith so they grow in their understanding. Now Paul shows this over and over again in the epistles. I'm not going to take time to turn to it. That really his focus is upon their understanding. He constantly focuses upon more truth. You need more truth. Now it's very easy for God's people to get to a point thinking that we know enough. Christ died for our sins. They're washed away. We're going to heaven. And even in our context here, in the church here, we may be able to add to that greatly. Be able to say, we know this, we know that, we know this doctrine, we know this subject. But to be able to confess before God that there's more to know, more to understand, and to that that deep desire to really know more about the Lord and what He has done. We are to read, therefore. We are to hear sermons. We are to have the desire to be growing in what we understand of what the Lord has done for us. Paul's desire to perfect or complete what was lacking in them shows that converts must be brought to maturity. that They have to grow. He's not just interested in converts, but he realizes that they have to know certain things. The Great Commission, in Matthew 28, verse 20, I've quoted it many times, says that we are to teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So there is this teaching that goes on once people profess faith in Christ, once they grow in their knowledge of their sins forgiven, there's more for them to learn. So when Paul uses this word to perfect their faith, to complete their faith, he is saying to them, there's more for you to understand. The same word is used in Luke chapter 6, verse 40 when Jesus says, The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. <coughs> Excuse me. So there is a completion in the growth of the disciple as he becomes like his master. Everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. He's not above, but he has to become like his master. And this is the Christian life. He is to be taught more so he understands what Jesus Christ has done for him, that Jesus Christ is his ultimate goal, manifesting a life like Christ and constantly growing in that life. John Calvin notes, From this also it appears how necessary it is for us to give careful attention to doctrine. For teachers were not appointed merely with the view of leading men in the course of a single day or month to the faith of Christ, but for the purpose of perfecting the faith which has been begun. Perfecting the faith. Now you may wonder, you know, why would someone spend so many months in one book? Why would he take so long to to get through a book? I mean you can read through this in a matter of minutes. And yet six months later into the seventh month, we're still here. And you may wonder why? We're halfway through the year of I don't know how many messages, close to thirty messages on the Gospel of Luke, we're not even finished chapter 3, and you may wonder, well, why? It seems very labored. And the purpose, beloved, is because you can read it for yourself. And if I am to preach the Word in such a way where I take, you know, one chapter at a time or two chapters at a time and just skim over the book, you'll not learn much more than what you can glean for yourself. The purpose of the pastor is to slow down, is to teach The people, what they don't see for themselves. It is to have the ability to just break down the Scriptures and slowly look at it so we grasp exactly what is contained. The Spirit of God has told us that every word of God is pure. Every word has significance. Every word can aid my sanctification. Every word can transform my life. We have known the power of even one verse in our own lives power of one text of scripture as it has come to our hearts, transforming us, bringing us to repentance, bringing us to faith, helping us to grow and understand the will of the Lord. And so we slow down. This is what Paul wanted to do. The letter is a substitute for what Paul really wanted to do. Now we're thankful too how God providentially used Paul's inability to go there to cause him to write a letter that we have to this day, God overrules in a wonderful way. But Paul would never, ever want to substitute being there in person with a letter if he had a choice. He'd far rather be with the people, slowly going over these matters, expounding upon them, and taking his time. I mean, we read of him preaching to midnight, taking his time because, you know, time is limited, and he, he wants to... Teach the people as much as he can before he leaves. And this is the mind of the apostle. If they know more, their faith gets complete. It gets perfected. It grows. It advances. And so the reason Paul wanted to be there, the reason he's praying for the overthrow of Satan's conquest to prevent him from being there, is because he wants to address the areas of weakness and ignorance. And this is God's will for all of our lives, beloved. His will is to bring us to completion, that He might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. So we ask ourselves the question, what is lacking in my faith? What is lacking in your faith? I I don't want to get sidetracked, but as I was reading this and preparing for this this past week, my mind was brought to where Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy. And says to him that, he's really exhorting him to study, to give himself to the things that Paul has given and instructed him in. And he says that thy profiting may appear to all. Thy profiting may appear to all. Now that assumes a number of things. It assumes first of all that Timothy, even though mature enough to lead a congregation, was not perfect, not complete. He himself needed to grow, needed to advance in his knowledge. And so as he would advance in his knowledge, the people would see it. That also implies the fact that Paul, or Timothy rather is in a place in one place for a certain length of time, because you're not going to see growth in a mature person overnight. Sometimes when people come to faith in Christ, you see dramatic changes in their life very quickly, very early on. And you can see it. you can see, well, once he gave himself to this or she was doing that, or whatever, and saying the other. And overnight, there's been this transformation. You can see it in their countenance. You can see it in everything about them. There's a transformation. And it's a bit like the infant. I mean, whenever you see that infant child, and then a month later, you can see, my, look how much larger, bigger the the child is. You can see the growth. But whenever they get to 30, and you see someone a month later, Unless something's very unusual, they'll basically look the same. You won't see any difference. So with maturity comes slower progress in terms of the dramatic influence of it. But it is not to stop. That's very humbling. It's humbling for a pastor to be exhorted that thy profiting may appear to all. That as you stand before people over the course of years that they would actually see a distinct difference in the man that first came before them and where he is years later. That text has always been a challenge to me. And when you go to a little congregation of 20 people, it's very easy to be careless. It's very easy to Say to yourself, well, I mean, they'll be happy with anything. I don't really need to work. I don't really need to labor in the Word because as long as I bring something, then they'll be content. But I remember being very challenged by that early on, shortly after my ordination, five years ago, almost five years ago, that thy profiting may appear to all. They have to see you grow. And one of the ways that is seen is in your understanding. As well as in how that understanding manifests itself in your life. Well, that's Paul's emphasis. I want to perfect, I want to complete that which is lacking in your faith. You don't know everything. You don't understand all of your sins. You don't understand the gravity of certain sins that remain in your life. You don't recognize all the glory of the Lord Jesus and what He has done. You need to grow. So this is His reason. But note also His submission. Verse 11, there's a submission here, even in his wish to overthrow Satan's conquest. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way onto you. While he desires to see Satan's efforts overcome, he submits to the Lord's providence. You see the word there he uses, direct our way onto you. If you have a margin, it will give the word Guide is an alternative translation. But it has the sense of removing hindrances, not just guidance. It has a sense of removing hindrances to make a path. Paul uses it in one other place. It's the second epistle to the Thessalonians. Chapter 3, verse 5, where he says, And the Lord direct our hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. The Lord direct your hearts. Guide your hearts. Remove the obstacles that prevent you from knowing the love of God. So who is directing? Well, you can see God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very interesting text, even in the way Paul constructs it here. You can see the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ being brought out, as he said, God Himself. God Himself. Well, who is God? Our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You can see the divinity of Christ being brought out here and even in the sense that he is looking both to the Father and to the Son to sovereignly direct our way onto you. We depend upon God to guide us every day. There is a submission to God in all things. Paul manifests this very clearly in his life. When you read through the book of Acts, you will see that it's not always about Paul's way. He has desires. He has longings. Especially, you'll see it in Acts chapter 16. And he wants so badly to go east. And yet the Spirit forbids him. And he wants to go to, I think it's, is it Bithynia? And again, the Spirit prevents him. And constantly, you find this man, at times, being hindered from going to the place that he wants to go. And while he would pray he would submit himself entirely to God. For a long time, he desired to go to Rome. He longed so badly to go to that city, and yet he never got there until, well, near the end. And he arrived there in a very different way than he would ever have imagined, arriving as a prisoner. So there's a submission here. When you think about your life, beloved, when you think about what you're wanting to do and where you want to live, and where you're going to go, and so on. Have a complete submission to the Lord. Now God himself, this is his wish, God himself, if it would please God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way onto you. We don't know for sure if he ever made it there. He he did return to Macedonia. Chances are that he would have desired to go there, but we can't say for sure. The record doesn't tell us. But he so badly wanted God to direct, but he submits to the Lord in everything. That brings us then to our second point. He not only wished for the overthrow of Satan's conquest, he wished for greater manifestation of the second commandment. Now, you look at verse 11. And you'll say, or verse 12 rather, and you'll say, well, where is the second commandment? I don't see the second commandment there. Well, I don't mean by the second commandment, thou shalt not make on thee any graven image. In this case, I'm referring to what the Lord uh, approved of being the second commandment in Matthew chapter 22. If you turn over there just for a moment, Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 35. It says, Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him, and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now we know that this wasn't exclusive knowledge to the Lord Jesus Christ. Other rabbis, students of the word, divided up the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, in this very same way. They understood that the first part related to the relationship that man has with God, and the second part has A reference to man's relationship with his fellow man. And so there's this recognition of the first commandment, what we have in terms of our duty to God, and the second commandment, that in terms of our duty toward man. And that's what I mean by the second commandment when we come to verse 12 of this chapter. The Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do, toward you. Paul is looking for growth in the second aspect of the law, this relationship that they had with their fellow man. And while the perfecting of their faith relates primarily to what they believe about God, the growth of their love relates primarily to how they interact with other people, at least in this passage. Now I want you to see in this wish for a greater manifestation of the second commandment in their lives, first the extent of it, and then we'll see the example, the extent. You can see him, uh, verse 12, the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. He is looking for the increase and abound. The, The words really are not too different in terms of their meaning, but he's just multiplying terms to show that he is desiring this overflow of the grace of love. Now the mark of the Holy Spirit working in the church and in the lives of brethren is love. We know this. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity or love, it profiteth me nothing. If there is not a manifestation of love, there's nothing. Nothing. I think we need to be reminded of that. That no matter what else we may boast in, no matter what may be our profession of what we exhibit in the Christian life, if we have not love, we have nothing at all. To ensure their lives are not wasted, Paul prays for the advancement of their love. If they advance in this, then all will be well. If they advance in everything else but this, it doesn't matter what the advancements may be. It's irrelevant. So one thing that Paul therefore manifests here is that he is not content to leave God's people in a position where they merely do what they must He wants them to increase and abound in love, not just show love. Of course, they must show love, but he wants them to increase and abound in love. Now, this is very important, that Paul would lay out this need to to really grow in the matter of love. Many of the Pharisees lived their lives content with a compliance to the letter of the law, but they ignored the spiritual implications. And so, so far as they would do what it says, strictly speaking, they were content. We've done our duty. Jesus said of these Pharisees, Matthew 23:25, They make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. They do everything externally. It's an external form of religion. But Paul's desire is that God's people give genuine expression of the grace of God that rolls in their hearts. And so he's looking for abounding, not just doing what may be seen as your duty, but even more than that, to increase and abound in love one toward another. The Lord Jesus taught us in Matthew 5.41, Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. If he compels, say, come with me one mile, go with him two miles. To go one mile is to do the letter of the law, to do your duty. Man asks you, come with me one mile and you go. I did my duty. But Jesus says, don't just do your duty. I want you to increase and abound in love. We are not merely, therefore, to give a strict adherence to the literal wording of the law. But we are to understand what the divine lawgiver really meant when he gave his commandments. To go the second mile is to manifest the spirit of the law. When you're asked to do this, that it goes much deeper in terms of its application in our lives. And so this church is exhorted to do just that. Don't just love, increase and abound in love. Now, they had love. Paul had already highlighted that. You Go back to chapter 1, verse 3. He says, and this is his own experience of them, what he remembered of them. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patient of hope. Patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. So he knows this. He knows this. And he is praying for them, upholding them, knowing that they manifest His work of faith and labor of love. He knows that personally for himself. But not just personally. Again, in chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy had given a report bringing good tidings of your faith and love. So he, he is hearing again that this love continues to manifest itself in in the body of Christ in that city. But he is praying for more. And that's the point. The Lord make you to increase. This is my wish for you. I don't want you to stay there. I want you to show more. I want you to manifest more. I don't want you to remain stagnant and content that we're we're loving one another in all the ways that we should be. But Paul wants every believer to ask himself, well, am I loving in all the ways I should be? And is that should, should should it deepen and broaden and be further exemplified in other ways that I'm not yet doing? The apostles' heart for the church is that they would manifest more love, that there cannot be enough. There can never be a limit that says that church has attained the standard that is set. That that is looking at the letter of the law that is making a sense of here's what it requires, and we set a certain standard, and when we hit it, if we can just sustain that, then all, all is well. that's not the point. The apostle's desire is don't have a standard that you can make a measurement there and say, well we've hit that, all's well and good. Realize that the love of God in Christ Cannot be marked. That the love you've experienced in the gospel is infinite. That what is in your heart, in terms of God forgiving your sin and making you a child of His, cannot be quantified. And so let that be your standard. There is no mark that can be set. You can never get to the point where you say, I'm showing as much love as Christ has shown me. So Paul's desire, his longing, his wish for them is that they would increase and abound and love one toward another. To abound, keep increasing, keep growing, keep showing because no matter how much love you show, still falls short of the love of Christ. Now he focuses first upon the believer. Increase and abound in love one toward another. And I think it' good for us just to realize that this may have been a very divided community in terms of demographics. It's probably made up of slave owners and the slaves themselves, of Jews and Gentiles, and many challenges that would need to be overcome, and yet they are called to abound more and more in love one toward another. And they wouldn't have manifested this up to this point. They would not be kind of carrying on in something that they already manifest in their lives. Some of these demographics would have been opposed to each other. They would have been deeply embedded prejudices in their hearts. It seems so far so good in terms of what the gospel has done in the church. But Paul is desiring among the people of God that they would show a greater increase of love one toward another. This cannot be overemphasized. Someone was praying about it even in the prayer meeting before. They were praying over that text where the Lord says that this is how you'll know that the world will know that you're my disciples if you have love one toward another. And so it cannot be overemphasized. And this is why Paul turns to it over and over again. In fact, I think, is it Philippians chapter 1? Where he prays for their love as well. Yeah, Philippians 1 verse 9, where he's praying for the church at Philippi. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. An abounding of love. There's more to that love that's specified there in terms of their discernment and decision-making, but it's love that needs to abound. And this is what he's praying for here. Increase and abound in love one toward another. This is why our fellowship times are important. It is in our fellowship times that we show that we actually care about one another. I know that there's some ministers and they have the mentality that we've just heard from God and having heard the word of God, we should just leave the church quickly and quietly and not talk to anyone, lest we should lose what we have heard from God. I can see their point, and I can see why they would desire that. But it misses, I think, an instrument that God uses for the building up of the saints. Sometimes when we come to church, it's not what we hear from the pulpit specifically that addresses where we are and what we need. But it may be that someone in the church, someone else, their hearts are touched by the Word. And it's that impact upon their hearts when they feel moved to come and talk to you and the conversation they have with you it's through that conversation you are ministered to that day. It's indirectly through the Word. And you feel encouraged and built up because someone cares or someone is praying. Or someone took note of our presence or our absence or whatever it might be. The conversations we have with one another, and indeed, whenever we close in prayer, sometimes I will pray for the fellowship that will follow. And you should be praying too, even if I neglect to pray for that. That as you bow your head at the close of the service, you know you're going to enter into conversation. Pray that it's profitable. Pray that it's meaningful. Pray that it's significant. That you would manifest an increasing love, abounding more and more toward one another. But it's not just toward the brethren. It's toward all men. In Galatians 6, Verse 10, Paul does prioritize love for and support of the brethren. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. There's a priority to the church, but we are not to neglect the world. We're to have love toward all men. The world needs to see our love. So Jesus teaches in Matthew five, forty-four: I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. We are living perhaps in an unprecedented time in terms of the lack of real love that there ought to be in the church you say, well, church life is fine. It is, for the most part. But what I mean is the church in the home. I don't know if it's unprecedented. I can't say definitively. But the failure rate in terms of marriage within the church of Jesus Christ is getting to a point of It's not uncommon anymore. A very well-known North American preacher over the past 20 years or so just announced the fact that he was separating, divorcing from his wife this past week. Not you we have been hearing this over and over again for years. What's particularly sad about this one is that he spent so much of his early ministry dealing with the subject of purity before marriage and then marriage itself. An emphasis upon his ministry in that area. And it's touching upon every church. It doesn't matter how conservative the church is, how well-grounded people have been in their youth. People are coming to a point where they can no longer really love. And when I was thinking about that and reading over Matthew 5, as I thought, well, what's the Lord teach us in terms of loving all men? Well, even to love our enemies. I thought how can you read Matthew five forty four and see that Jesus expects me to love people in this way that I never vowed to love? He wants me to love my enemies, bless them that curse me, do good to them that hate me, pray for them, which despitefully use me, and persecute me. He wants me to love people that I never vowed to love in that way. How? How much more obligated am I to love those that I have vowed to love? How much more inexcusable is it that we step away and walk away from vows that though man may forget, God never forgets. We must be praying, praying for our marriages and our homes. Paul is praying here that the church would increase in love one toward another and toward all men. And as a pastor living in 2019, ministering to a congregation that is surrounded by the common knowledge and news of separation after separation and divorce after divorce, And the fear of the heart is, who will be next? I have prayed regularly that God, and again, it's a wish. (laughs) It's a longing like Paul had, as he's expressing here. That number one, I would never see the divorce of anyone that I am called to minister to. Number two, I would never see the children that I'm called to minister to ever lost and depart from the faith. It is so grieving to the soul. The Lord make you to increase and abound and love one toward another. Those that are married here today make sure that that love is abounding toward your spouse. You're increasing and abounding in love toward your husbands, your wives. As as I stand before this congregation, you would manifest that. How on earth can we truly be said to love anyone if we cannot love the one we have vowed to God to love till death us depart. So, the extent of love is here in verse 12. We also have the example of it, even as we do toward you. How are we to love others? Well, the so-called wisdom of the day would say, you need to love yourself before you love others. Every time I read that, I cringe. You need to love yourself before you love. I'm learning to love myself so that I can love others. And people spend all this energy trying to love themselves. <laughs> they do. And I, I, I lament. I, I mean, it's out there in the world, but I mean, they're ships without rudders. They, they, they don't acknowledge the truth, so I don't expect much from them. But it's coming into the church I hear Christians talk this way. I'm learning to love myself. This is a carnal and satanic distraction from the will of God. First, and I'm just touching on this. This is not extensive at all, but just throwing seeds of preventative measures into your mind. First, God's Word never commands you to love yourself. It assumes it. It assumes you love yourself. Ephesians five twenty eight and 29. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh. It assumes you love yourself. You don't have any problem there. Second, the Word of God warns that a focus upon self-loving is a mark of an ungodly generation. Second Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. They'll put a priority there. They'll make it the focus of their lives, trying to learn to love themselves. In contrast, Paul's desire is that the church would love others and that they would learn how to do so by learning from the example of himself and Silas and Timothy that were before them, even as we do toward you. He's essentially encouraging them to ask, what would Paul do? Or what did Paul do? And if you want to know what Paul did, go back to chapter 2, especially the opening 12 verses. I'll not go over it. You can, If you missed those messages, you can listen to them. But you can read it yourself and see the extent of Paul's love for them. And Paul's praying, Lord, help them to love each other as much as we love them. And Paul had loved them. And maybe some that were in the church had been enemies of God. Indeed, they all had been enemies of God. But maybe they had manifested actual hostility toward Paul, and yet he loved them. Won them for Christ. Thirdly, and very quickly, he wished for their holiness at the second coming. He wished for their holiness at the second coming. Now when we come into chapter 4, we're going to be dealing with sanctification. So I'm not going to elaborate too much upon this as it is shown here at the very end of chapter 3. But he says in verse 13, to the end... He may establish, that's the same word he used in verse 2, that he wanted Timothy to go and to establish you. Same word. So he's praying for this continued establishing or strengthening and grounding of them. So this is a new church, a new church. He wants them established. Timothy, go and make sure that they're established. But he wants it to go right to the very end. To the end he may establish your heart's unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. It is the strengthening of their hearts. Why the heart? Because the heart speaks of the new man with quickened affections. So there's that new man, but that new man needs to be strengthened with all might by the Spirit in the inner man. And so the focus of the prayer for them has been upon perfecting their faith, verse 10, Advancing their love, verse 12, but that's not an end of itself. Christians are not just to, to grow in their faith and advance in their love and just be left in isolation or in a vacuum. The whole point is that they are found unblameable in holiness before God. Unblameable in holiness. That is the desire. Paul sees this end. When the church is gathered together at the coming of Christ, he's already made mention of this—the coming of Christ—several times. The end of, cha- in fact, every chapter. I think certainly the first few chapters end with the coming of the Lord. Chapter one, verse ten, to wait for for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. It's referring to His coming. The end of chapter two, verse nineteen. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. And here at the end of chapter 3, again, he's referring to His coming. He's going to do it again in chapter 4, the the coming of the Lord. So in chapter 4, we'll deal about the coming of the Lord Jesus a little little more. But here's the scene. This is the scenario. This This is the perspective. It is them strengthened in their hearts, unblameable in holiness before God. Now, this is the desire. Unblameable. Without blame. That doesn't mean to say without sin. It's not that they have of the absence of sin. We noted that even when we were dealing with Elizabeth and Zechariah, that they were walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And yet, yet a few verses later we see Zechariah not believing God, sinning in unbelief. But the general tenor of the life is one where you cannot see obvious deficiencies. It cannot be said that they are truly hypocrites because the outward conduct of their life is without blame. You can see a consistency in all their words and works. And Paul wants to see this. And how will he see it? Well, if their faith becomes more complete and they understand more, and if they abound more and more in love, if they're abounding in love, really growing in love, advancing in love, manifesting more love, and it keeps doing that to the very end of their lives, There's no possible way that it could be anything but said of them that their hearts are unblameable in holiness. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Abounding in love is abounding in purity, is abounding in Christ's likeness. And if you make it your life's goal to fulfill the wish of the apostle in verse 12, to increase and abound in love one toward another, and toward all men. If you make that prayer, Lord, make me to abound and increase in love more today than I did yesterday and any other day. If that was a prayer and that was answered, you wouldn't have to worry about the coming of the Lord and how you would stand. Because there's no doubt that you would be unblameable in holiness before God. So you don't have to focus upon it. Will I be unblameable in holiness? You don't have to worry about that. Worry about today increasing and abounding in love more and more, one toward another and to all men. Could be concerned about that. Seek to manifest that. And you won't have to worry about the end because it will be assured that you will be in the right condition before God at that time. My time is gone. I I will come back to this as we break into chapter 4. But it's tremendous just to see how the apostle then begins to apply the desire for holiness toward the church at the beginning of chapter 4. And what I want us to think about, and just leave it here for today, is that as we read passages like this, and when we come down to chapter 4, it will be the same. When we see the desire of the apostle, here's the apostle praying night and day, that he might perfect their faith, what is lacking there, and to see them grow in their love. You you may ask yourself, well, am am I there? Am I I doing this? I, I mean, I feel like I'm falling short. And it feels impossible. Well, you may be falling short or you may not. Only God, perhaps, can truly quantify how we're getting on. But what I want us to realize is, Paul knows the cross is sufficient to do this for his people. He has no doubt whatsoever that the blood shed on Calvary's cross, the atoning work of the Son of God, the uh, the application of the benefit of redemption to the people of God can do this. There's no want in the treasures and riches of Christ. There's no want in the power of the Spirit. There's no want in the grace of God. It is all there. And if we truly began to pray for one another, that we would increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, we're just taking advantage of what is already ours. The grace of Christ is sufficient. And of course you may ask, well, did God answer Paul's prayer? Just quickly turn maybe one page in your Bible to the beginning of the second epistle. God certainly began to answer his prayer because we read in chapter 1 of the second epistle, verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet because that your faith groweth exceedingly. He wanted to complete what was lacking in their faith. It's growing exceedingly. And the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. You know, it's wonderful when you see God answer prayer. And often we really see that most and get more joyful about that in certain practical things. But would to God we were more joyful when we see the advance of the spiritual. The advance of the spiritual in each of our lives. May God help us, beloved. May he truly help us to advance in holiness in the way, as described here, the increase of our faith and the manifestation of love. To the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Let's bow together in prayer. Thank you for your patience in enduring this ongoing issue I have with my voice. Just continue to pray for us, beloved, that it would improve and the Lord would give the grace and help we need. You now, I was thinking, what if we were to pray this, and that even by the end of the year, that whether we recognized it or not, that heaven would be able to accord, record that that church has increased and abounded in love more, one toward another and toward all men. May the Lord grant it to be even so. Father, we confess that at times we are so Time bound and earth bound, that we focus upon very visible, tangible things that we want to see accomplished in our lives. We maybe want to have that job, or we want to get into that course, or we want to find a place to live, or we want to to find a spouse, or we have these various prayers. Desires that bring joy at times when they are fulfilled. But Lord, deliver us from merely desiring these things. Let us desire to perfect our faith. Lord, I pray for a ministry that will perfect the faith of the saints that are before me, Lord's day by Lord's day. I pray their minds, and as their minds are expanded to the truth, their hearts will be expanded. In response to that truth, I pray that Thou wilt help us in our rightly dividing of the truth and that Christ would be preeminent in all of our hearts as we learn more of what Thou hast done for us and what Thou dost expect from us. And I ask, Lord, that our love would abound more and more. I pray that Thou wilt help us to manifest it toward one another. Lord, if there be any issue there, in this congregation. And Lord, even if there's not an issue, there's a deficiency. But we're not abounding. And even if we are abounding, we are to abound more and more. We are to to increase more. We are to seek to set our sights higher even to the love of God in Christ. So we pray that thou wilt lead us as a congregation into a very practical expression of the love of God toward one another. Do it today. Do it day by day. And may we know much of thy grace and help to do it, even when it's hard. I pray again for the families of this church, Lord, It grieves our hearts to hear news of of difficulties and homes and people all around us and various churches and various places and those that name the name of Christ and Lord, we pray that thou wilt have mercy upon even the news that we hear upon those individuals that we know about. Lord, step in, show kindness, show mercy, and grant that in this congregation, thou wilt give us an increasing love toward our wives, toward our husbands, as it were, to show the love of God that we know and we've experienced and that we would not, we would not make excuses for ourselves, but that our love would grow and abound more and more. So answer prayer and search our hearts and bring us to repentance and enable us to do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with our God. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.